Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. Kyle Cludy. We talked about identity. We talked about who we are as a profession and kind of where we may go as a profession if we really understand who we are. And so in any case, uh, as always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. What Kyle and I are talking about today is the total patient care model. And it really starts with creating the identity and then building a process around that identity that will lead to outcomes. And ultimately, those outcomes are going to be better better patient care. And so if you want some help integrating steps, and we believe there's five steps to create that pillar, uh, whether it's dry eye or glaucoma or macular degeneration or binocular vision, we have a program that can help you with that. It is a total patient care model, an on-demand program that you can use with your team to sort of workshop these ideas. We lead you through each one of these steps and show you how to build that and allow you to build it for your own team, customized for you. But if you also want some additional help within a mastermind group, we have that available as well. So we're really looking forward to working with you. Thanks for checking it out. You can check it out uh, at icodeeducation.com or the links will be in today's show notes. Getting young presbyopes into progressive lenses can be tough, but it doesn't have to be. Verilux Liberty 3.0 lenses are an introductory solution for new and young presbyopes, and they are available in select ad powers. This lens provides all-in-one balanced vision for an accessible and great first-time progressive lens wearing experience. Learn more about Verilux Liberty 3.0 lenses and get free resources to help start the progressive lens conversation with young presbyopes at eslorpro.com slash Verilux. I want to get your perspective on the problem, Mm -hmm. like the problem in most primary care optometric practices is what? Uh, The problem. Let me uh, share a story first that I think highlights the problem that, uh, because I don't want to say the problem too uh, bluntly and sound uh, unempathetic and people be turned away by it. So um, well, well, I think, but and, and let's preface that too, because I, I think it's it's important to kind of work through the fact. I mean, the, kind of the background um, of uh, people that listen to this that seen you on that have seen you on the podcast before know that you and I spend at least an hour a week with our minds sort of yeah. open to different ideas to challenge each other and to um, and to. Uh, kind of explore ideas in a in a space that's kind of sounds weird, but yeah. like a non judgy space. Um, and most of that uh, comes down to like public health types of things and optometric practice. Yep. And so we we make these observations about what we see ourselves doing, uh, and what we see as a natural tendency within our profession and within ourselves. And also reflecting on our peers uh, and how we see those same natural tendencies among them as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think I'll kind of set it up to say, I know I haven't asked you what that question is Mm -hmm. or what the problem is. Mm -hmm. uh, And we haven't talked about what your answer is going to be. I don't know exactly. Yeah. But I, I kind of know. And so that's that's sort of the facetiousness of this. But it's also the the fact that it's not you when you set up the problem it's not you being judgy, although it could come off that way. It's, it's that we are optometrists 
we see a natural tendency of ourselves and we're really connected with a lot of our peers to see the same thing among them. Uh, so go ahead. What's, so I, I wanted to set that up so it doesn't sound yeah. sort of. Yeah. yeah great preface um, sets the context. Well, so I would say it has to do with the word just just that single word just. And what I mean by that is that when I was in residency, so I did a residency, uh, a VA residency in uh, Battle Creek, Michigan. And one of the things that um, my residency director, uh, Dr. Molly McGinty, she was really good about uh, uh, kind of poking fun in a good way, like in a way that built you up and corrected you, but also made you aware of like, hey, this is the, kind of your wrong thing right here. You need to kind of correct that. You need to value your, yourself more. And, and what she would do is she would uh, hear you saying to patients uh, the statement, hey, I, for example, you'd be walking down the hall, you'd be bringing, you know, you, you grab your patient, you, you walk down the hall with them and then you take them to your exam lane. And they would ask you a lot of times, "Hey, are you uh, are you an eye doctor, or what? You know, what uh, what is your position?" Yeah, and I'm I'm an optometrist. Um, so, are you do you uh, do surgery, or are you an ophthalmologist? Or and, and a lot of times, what I would find myself saying, and what Molly would catch me on, is I would say, "No, I'm just an optometrist." And mm. and it would. Uh, it would just make her. You would never hear an ophthalmologist say that. By you the way. would never say, never hear them say that. Um, so it's the word "just." That's what she would pick apart. That's what she would hear you say, and just make her skin crawl. And then she would kind of joke with you, "Just an optometrist, huh, Kyle? We're just an we're just optometry." <laughs> and uh, I know that that's kind of joking, and but it there that phrase gets underneath. I think a lot of some of the perils or some of the issues that we constantly struggle with in our profession of we uh, too often we think that we are uh, just like it's you know it sounds we're just an optometrist the the opposite of that is like hey we are we're an optometrist i'm an optometrist and this is what i do and i have a very clear identity of uh, what i do and how i do it and I have a really strong belief in my abilities and how I can help patients and what I do to help the community through my skills and expertise and eye care. That's, that's different than, well, I'm just an optometrist because it kind of positions you, it, it creates a mindset or like a fundamental belief structure that you are subservient to something else that you are just kind of like, you know, I, I'm nothing against our PA, like physician assistant counterparts, but uh, I wonder sometimes if our schools aren't doing a good enough job um, educating our optometrists. They're, they're, um, they're creating mindsets that they're subservient to ophthalmology and they're not like, we're not our, you know, our, our own, distinct profession you know we're not we're not experts in eye care to be ophthalmology assistants right and i know that's kind of extreme yeah, and a yeah. little bit crude a little bit blunt um but like we are who we are like we are a separate field and we're a profession that uh, knows how to take care of the whole patient and uh we are the best place for patients to go for their eye care you know so it's a really like robust identity issue that i think underlies a lot of the ailments of our profession. 
Well, I mean, that, that is, it certainly insert, like, encapsulates a lot of the, the conversations we have. And, and mostly it's, it's why do we do this? You yeah. know, like, why do we do this as optometrists? And, you know, uh, the thing that, you know, one of your mentors and, and mine, um, your, yours in a lot of ways clinically, mine in a lot of ways um, uh, legislatively, mm-hmm. uh, but Bob Vandervoort, he always says, you know, optometry is not a subset of ophthalmology, mm-hmm. you know, optometry is not a, um, you know, we're not a, uh, and, and actually to say it another way, ophthalmology doesn't, and we all know this, but ophthalmology isn't a next level optometrist, mm-hmm. right? So, so that when they come and try to compare themselves to us and compare their education to our education, etc., it's just not a comparison that they know anything about. And, and also that is, is a, a, uh, an accurate comparison. Mm-hmm. And, but but it's obvi- obviously exploited. So I want to I want to get into this because um, you know it's easy to blame um, like one thing. You know yeah. we've done it. We've we've blamed yep. probably everything yeah. on why this happens. Um, but but you know we see the same thing. Is like um, we see that that well I'll just let I'll just let the glaucoma surgeon take a look at this patient or. You know, we'll, we'll kind of hedge. Well, here I see a, a retinal hemorrhage in the back of your eye. Mm-hmm. And I have, I have a, a doctor I respect a lot. Um, and I've gotten to know him pretty well over the last few years. And, you know, just the how does it sound when you see a blot hemorrhage in a patient who doesn't have known microvascular risk factors? And, uh, and sometimes you can kind of see, see him kind of wiggling as we talk through some of these things. See him wiggling into this. Um, well, you could just see the, the retinal specialist, you know, like tell, talking to the patient. Well, we, we don't know exactly what this could be. It could be, uh, he knows, he knows exactly what, what it could be. You know, it could be high blood pressure. It could be uh, Valsalva. It could be uh, diabetes. It could be um, high cholesterol, or it could be this whole other kind of zebra, these zebra kind of conditions that could cause these little hemorrhages. Um, and so I want you to see your primary care doctor. Talk to him about that, right? And then, and then he'll almost kind of leave them himself out with the patient of like, well, we could send you to the retinologist. Um, you know, we, we could get, could the, and, and my, my question always is when that happens is, and it's not just to him, but it's to everybody. It's like, well, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? What, what? And, and if you can, if you can't answer that, you need to figure out why you can't answer it. Mm-hmm. And if you can answer it and it's the same thing that you can do, then we need to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. How do you think, like, how do you, Chris, uh, how have you arrived at that for yourself? Like, um, when you look at it, we, you know, we just discussed, like, fundamentally, it's an identity issue, you know, when we think about it, when we think about uh, optometry and having that little bit of a mindset issue of being just an optometrist and maybe not feeling like maybe they're trained well enough to handle certain situations or um, maybe not believe that they have the experience to handle it, or maybe just not like you just uh, referenced to, maybe they don't even know what to do. You know, maybe it is purely just understanding uh, or, or knowledge of the situation at hand. How do you, like, how did you arrive at that? You know, like, you know, you're clearly in a position where, you have practiced in a way that has taken care of the whole patient for over a decade now. Like what, what got you there? I think, um, 
I, I, it, I think as you've described really well, and I didn't arrive at this, but, um, but it's a, it's identity. I mean, I would have been able to answer this question seven or eight months ago before you and I had talked about it on one of our many runs, but I think, um, I think it's, it's identity and, and, and actually it, it is a belief that I am better than, you know, I, I believe our profession is better at taking care of the whole patient, mm-hmm. uh, than, than our counterparts. If, if, if push comes to shove, I think that's, that's, that's a belief I have. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that belief was instilled, you know, by guys who kind of, uh, who I was able to rub shoulders with and who were able to kind of bring me through, uh, through my growth, um, in both clinical aspects and also political aspects of the profession. So I saw how they practiced. I saw that, well, they don't need to, to, uh, be just an optometrist. Mm -hmm. They, they are an optometrist and they embrace that. Um, and so guys like David Cockrell, guys Mm -hmm. like my dad, guys like Bob Vandervoort, um, and, uh, and guys like Jason Ellen, you know, Jason was one of my, you know, I mean, I, I started talking about it. It's, it's, it's that they instilled in me a belief that, um, that we are better. Uh, and, and maybe better is the wrong term because then some people kind of recoil at that. Yeah. You know, I, I make this joke often now when I speak, but it's like, well, no, I, I, that's, that's kind of arrogant. I don't, I don't believe it's arrogant. I think, I think the profession has demonstrated over years and decades that we provide excellent care. And part of why we provide excellent care is because we're very reflective. And, and, and when I say, when I say that that's how I, I practice, um, and you, you made that comment about taking care of the whole patient, it can come off really arrogant of like, no, I'm better. I'm better than an ophthalmologist. And, and I, I think the reason we're better is not necessarily because our technical skills are better mm-hmm. or our diagnostic skills are better or our ability to manage uncertainty is better. The reason we're better is because we have a healthy skepticism of our own place in the world mm-hmm. and our own place, uh, our own place of like what we know and what we don't know. And unfortunately, that skepticism of what we know for certain and what we don't know for certain, that is what play. That's the question that I asked you. And that's that's kind of your answer, mm-hmm. too, is like if you don't have a good handle on how to manage that, then it's really challenging. And I've just had good mentors to help me manage that. So it helps build confidence. So I think the point is, is that what makes us better as a profession is that we understand we have humility to know that we don't know everything. And I I completely think that about myself. I don't know everything, but where I feel like we can master this as a profession, uh, hopefully better over time is instead of that uncertainty, creating doubt and, and kind of fear and just this, you know, just an optometrist, uh, it creates a situation of like, all right, well, how do I navigate that uncertainty and be able to, to, um, know that, uh, you know, I was trained the same way that everybody else was, and I know that in me is this sense of like, well, maybe I'm wrong, but how do I, how do I, um, how do I hold on to that? Maybe I'm wrong mentality in a way that helps patients and doesn't just make me kick them off to somebody else. And that, that, that's, I don't know if that's the best answer yeah. I could give you or even a clear direct answer, but it's, it's kind of what I would think as, as why I'm the way I yeah. am. Yeah. And I, I mean, people see, to even get more personal with you, like I think people see uh, you as very like as such a high achiever. You know, when we look at what you've accomplished, and this isn't a podcast about you, Chris, but I'm just using this as an example. Like 
um, when we when you think about the things that you've achieved in your career so far, you know, you have a thriving practice with uh, with you know two associate optometrists um, helping you out, um, and you've got uh, nine children and a wife to take care of. Uh, you've got a, a successful podcast. Uh, you're instrumental in local and um, federal legislative issues for the profession. Uh, you lecture all over the country. And I think a lot of people can see that as, holy smokes, how does he get all that done? And, I, and I've uh, grown to understand you better, you know, just through our friendship the last several years. But um, it hits on the point, like when it comes down to it, um, the achievement that you've been able to do and over the many course of the years, it's, it's because of a fundamental way that you believe about yourself, you know? And if you were to, mm. if you were to define, you know, that whole encompassing thing, I'm guessing somewhere along the lines, like you, you believe that you can do all those things. Like you have a high, um, you obviously are an achiever. Your personality is you're gifted in a specific way that you're fairly effective and fairly efficient what you do. Like that's a non-negotiable, but even beyond that, people can be really effective and efficient, but if they don't believe in themselves, if they don't believe in what they're doing and have a, uh, a identity based upon a really uh, purposeful why, right? Um, they're still not gonna achieve what you're achieving and what you can achieve, you know? So it comes back to like all this, what we're pointing to, there's, uh, and I, we've talked about it so much and I've included in some of the lectures I've given last year, but one of the best books in the last, I don't even know, three, four years, I think it was released in maybe 19 or so, uh, 2018 or 19 is James Clear's uh, uh, Atomic Habits. And I was, I actually uh, got to kind of have a little bit of a review. The book is on my list, my, my to reread list for this year. Uh, but also uh, Tim Ferriss just had James Clear on his podcast this week, which was a great refresher. So if you're listening to this and you need a good refresher from the author, go and listen to Tim Ferriss, the Tim Ferriss podcast. Uh, it's a fantastic interview and James Clear, he goes through so many different things about habits, but one of his big things about creating sustainable habits is you start with the identity. And that's really what we're talking about, right? So we always think of a habit or uh, goals or achievement. We want to start with kind of the end in mind and that's okay. You can do that. We want to start with like the, you know, I want to lose, uh, 20 pounds, we start with the, uh, the actions that are going to take, take us to losing 20 pounds. Uh, and then we get really regimented and, uh, in trying to achieve those things. And then a lot of times maybe we'll achieve it. And if we, even if we do achieve it and we succeed, well, a lot of times that weight comes back because we get burned out of achieving, right? Uh, what James clear makes clear, uh, clear, uh, no pun intended in his, uh, in his book is he's, he talks about how when you create a new habit, you have to start, uh, or it's better to start with the why first or with the, the belief first because, uh, or the identity first. So in that example of losing weight, basically you want to be, if you want to lose 20 pounds, it's better to start with the idea of, you know what, I want to be the type of person that uh, can run two miles a day. Or I want to be the type of person that uh, is really fit, or I want to be the type of person that uh, can do, you know, 50 push-ups. You start with an identity first, and then you create the actions to reinforce the identity. Because it's, and that's the, the genius of that concept is, and I think it's so true, is that 
the identity identity determines action or identity or beliefs uh, underlie action and then actions reinforce that identity. And so that, the reason I find that so powerful is because I look at that in my practice and I'm not one that just like, I, you know, by nature, I'm not <clears throat> super effective and super efficient. I'm actually um, quite passive. Uh, I'm uh, pretty introverted. Uh, it takes a lot of like uh, work for me. It takes a lot of structure for me to be assertive. Uh, and you probably, you, you know, it's, we're pretty opposite in terms of our personality. I mean, there's sometimes when like, uh, you know, you're very assertive, I'm more responsive. Uh, there's probably times when in our, you know, friendship, when you're probably like, holy smokes, Kyle, just make a move, like make a decision you know, move forward. And then there's times when I'm looking at you uh, and I'm thinking, Chris, come on, slow down, buddy. Like, just like think through this, you know? Um, but that, that's just personality wise. So I, I personally just need, uh, I've always been, once I uh, realized these kind of things about myself and become aware, like I know that it's, it's really important for me to always focus on the why and the identity first. And that's why it's been so important in my practice as it's grown. You know, we started about three years ago uh, I bought a practice, kind of a warm start practice, and kind of reinforced these types of things with my staff and with our protocols from day one. Uh, and it all comes back to like, okay, we're going to be, I'm the type of op optometrist that takes care of the whole patient, you know, started with that. I'm the type of person that does this. I'm the type of optometrist that um, that can do myopia control and treat glaucoma and take care of a retinal tear uh, and refer appropriately and and uh, uh, also diagnose binocular vision disorders, you know. Um, and then you build the actions to reinforce that identity as you go. So that's been, I, I love that concept. It's been super helpful for me. Yeah, I think, I agree with you. I think, um it's there's some things about about your analysis of of you know kind of your personality i think you have a better handle on your on your identity or your personality than than i might and i think and and actually um i try to find kind of i think i may have some blind spots that you've been able to help me a lot with of like you know, being able to identify that not everybody thinks the way I think. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's been really helpful. And, and actually, like by knowing that it, it can help me. Um, I mean, again, it's just in general, if you've been able to identify like, well, be able to pinpoint your identity, it can really help you be more effective be when you do realize that everybody doesn't think the way yeah. you think. And, and how do you how can you effectively communicate with people who don't uh, think the way you think? And, and actually, it it what all of this builds to is um well, i was reflecting on this the other day uh so i was i was you know i, I i've talked about f3 you're an, you're in f3 i am um, yes uh <laughs> but i can't get you back again, uh to, to get to work out but but i think the, the the reason i bring that up is i was talking yesterday um i was running at a site called the catalyst where we run on old lincoln highway with all those cobblestone yeah so those, chris uh, brick uh, add add that to to your list of things that you achieve on F3 every morning. <laughs> the, yeah. So the, the, the reason I bring this up is um, I was, you know, your, I, your kind of bringing um, atomic habits to me was 
like a moment of really great clarity in my ability to to kind of pinpoint things about myself and also help me and, and kind of help me uh, through just reflection with you over the years of of understanding how to communicate with other people. But the reason I bring this up is I've got um, there's a there's a guy in F3 who I am just pulling for. I mean, just pulling for so much. Yeah. And I like uh, and a lot of guys are they've got so much vested in in uh, in this one individual. And um, and he's made these great strides mm. over the last five to six months. Um, and then, you know, you see this and then kind of this falling off the wagon. Mm. And I, I was talking to another um, one of one of my friends about it in, in the group. And, and he was asking me how this guy was doing. And um, and uh, and we were kind of reflecting on it and, 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 you know, say, hey, reach out to him again, see how he's doing, kind of bring him back along. And uh and, and and we're kind of reflecting like why does he have why is he having trouble right now and what I, what it occurred to me was like it's the opposite you know like you ask me well how do you do all the people ask me like how do you do all this stuff how do you manage mm-hmm. the time and do all this stuff and it's like i don't know i just i just do it mm-hmm. you know you, you kind of uh, get in the habits but i bring that up because imagine that uh, it was completely the opposite you know you had a hard time waking up in the morning because you just didn't feel good about yourself and you didn't have good fundamental beliefs mm-hmm. and you create these processes in life that ultimately have road bumps and those road bumps you can't overcome them uh, and so you never achieve the outcome you were looking for mm-hmm. so you feel like you're a failure like it's totally the opposite and how hard that would be to overcome those things uh, so I, I was like well look if if you came to me and said Chris this is all wrong. Like the way you're living your life is all wrong. Um, and, uh, and I had these, this like built in identity. Um, and then it was totally wrong. I'd be like, well, no, it's not. And and how hard it would be to kind of reverse that shift. Mm -hmm. And so it just speaks to the larger aspect of kind of us as an individual, not even just within optometry, but you know, with him, he's trying to not just kind of enhance the way he feels about himself. Like you, you and I get to say, you know, I, I'm, I'm uh, kind of really good at this one thing. And, you know, maybe if I, I figure out how to have a better identity uh, or be the type of guy that can do this, um, it's like, I'm not the kind of guy that can do that. You know, it's really hard for me. I, I, I'm 50 pounds overweight and, um, you know, my, my, uh, my wife left me. I don't have a great relationship with my kids and, you know, like, I'm not saying that's him. I'm just saying like, whatever that thing is, um, it just sort of beats you down. I mean, we talk about being a man and like, as a man, that's what I know as a man, that would be so defeating. But I guess the point is, is that as I, as I reflect on that, if as a profession, we haven't done a good a job of really kind of pinpointing our identity mm-hmm. and having this firm rooted belief in our identity. Um, then you can see how we can just be like, I'm just an optometrist. So today I want to talk about the Mind Day Multifocal for just a second. It has been a really great thing in our practice for our patients who are presbyopes of all areas, but you know, those tricky presbyopes are always the ones that are kind of emerging where they don't want to give up any of their faraway vision, but they're having some struggles up close. And so what uh, the My Day Multifocal has been able to do for us is to allow those patients to transition into a multifocal more easily. And then as we have those patients progress into other levels where they need more ad powers, it's been a nice, smooth transition. So the ultimate hurdle that we've seen in our practice before the My Day Multifocal was that 
We'd have patients who would resist any transition to a multifocal lens because of that distance blur. We just haven't seen that. So if you haven't started using MyDay Multifocal in your practice, I would encourage you to start, check it out, uh, contact, reach out to your Cooper reps for those trial lenses uh, and commit to MyDay Multifocal for your patients. I think they're gonna like it. If you haven't checked out MacuHealth yet for your patients in category one through category four, I think there's a lot of evidence that you should be considering. The first is if we just look at AREDS 2 and what they, they talk about, MacuHealth is, a, so for patients in category three and category four, um, AMD, MacuHealth is a great option for them that follows that entire, um, that entire protocol. And it also adds mesozeaxanthine to the mix, which if you look at some of the evidence, I believe shows me that it's going to thicken the macular pigment better than without mesozeaxanthine. It also uses the a correct AREDS2 dose of zinc uh, at 25 milligrams. And so you don't have to worry so much about the potential side effects of zinc. The other thing to, to think about, and it's beyond the scope of this, although you've probably heard me talk on other podcasts, is that in patients in category one and two, there may be some additional benefit uh, to supplementing them with something that may be a little bit less than the AREDS2, so you don't have to add as much to it. And that's where I use the MacuHealth LMZ3. And so I think if you haven't done this yet, I'd consider MacuHealth in your practice and for your patients. And it's been great for my patients, and, um, and we really feel like we can have the ability to uh, help those patients in all categories of macular degeneration. Yeah, I, a couple points to that. I think when you look at that, like when you think about that scenario of your friend there and you kind of realize and reflect on how hard it is actually to change identity, I think that <clears throat> that, that speaks to um, that speaks to the power of community, right? Um, I think that as I've reflected on this kind of that concept of like identity determines action and an action reinforces identity. It's like, well, what if you, um, you just look at su successful people and a lot of times identity isn't chosen first, but they still become successful and they still become like habitually successful. So you think, well, why is that? And I think the reason is, is because of community is be, if you, you, cause you can catch actions from other people, you can catch habits from other people. And I think that's by and large, what we caught from like what you, the list of guys that you talked about or mentors. And, and I can, I have a list as well uh, in my mind of things like actions and habits that I caught that kind of like in the back-ended way reinforced like created the identity of who I was um, hmm. and I think community really does that it reinforces that identity but if you're on your own like if you're if you don't have a community around you like you have to start with the identity and then you probably have to start you probably have to find a community of like-minded individuals that can reinforce that and then can keep you accountable to those actions you know the other thing, and I think that pertains to our profession tremendously, like, um, you know, we're not here to promote any specific, you know, like vision source or anything. We're, we're both part of it. But the big part of the, one, the, really the primary reason why I'm part of it is because of that community aspect of it. It, you know, when I look around, I just see really, really good optometrists doing what I want to do, have successful practice practices in their uh, a lot of them are part of this this uh, this group, so it's like, well, I want to be in the same room as them, you know. And I want to, if I go through troubles, I want to be in the same room with them. If they go through troubles, I want to be in the same room with them, uh, and go through and 
understand and promote our practices and figure out, you know, the next technology and treatments and protocols. So I think that's the power of community. The other thing when it pertain with it, as it pertains to our profession, like I'm just going to read you. I have a, this is a slide that I I've presented in the past that it's uh it's called what is primary eye care. And I'm going to read this list of bullet points and then I'll tell you where it's from. So this is the this is the definition of primary eye care in one of the uh, clinical guidelines that's out there in our in our profession or in our industry. It's educating patients about maintaining and promoting healthy vision. It's performing a comprehensive examination of the visual system, screening for eye diseases and conditions affecting vision that may be asymptomatic, recognizing ocular manifestations of systemic diseases and systemic effects of ocular medications making a differential diagnosis and definitive diagnosis for any detected abnormalities, performing refractions, fitting and prescribing optical aids such as glasses and contact lenses, deciding on a treatment plan and treating patients' eye care needs with appropriate therapy, counseling and educating patients about their eye disease conditions, recognizing and managing local and systemic effects of drug therapy. There's two more, hang with me. (laughs) Determining when to triage patients for more specialized care, and referring the specialist as needed and appropriate, coordinating care with other physicians involved in the patient's overall medical management. The last bullet is performing surgery when necessary. This is the definition of that's ASCO. This is the definition of primary eye care from the uh, preferred practice patterns. Uh, or actually, it's according to the Academy of Ophthalmology. Ah, uh, Academy of Ophthalmology. Well, yeah, and, and actually, ASCO's statement is very similar to that. So the Association of Schools and Colleges uh, kind of have the they they call them attributes of graduating, you know, mm. of, of graduating uh, optometrists, but it's all it almost mirrors that mm. of what primary care is yeah. for ophthalmology. So I just think if there's any uh, identity, like if there's one like take home to this, obviously it's know your beliefs, know your why, but also it's we're primary eye care physicians like that's and we're the type of doctors or you know we believe we are primary eye care physicians we're the type of doctors who do this and it's that entire list and we do it all we do it all for the the you know for the visual system for the eyeball so uh Again, it takes community. It takes all of us to kind of rally around this concept and understand where we don't uh, maybe fundamentally believe that. I think that's one thing, too, is I think uh, a lot of people, if they haven't really thought this way, if you haven't really thought about what beliefs are underlying your actions, uh, it's kind of hard to. Those are some tough questions, you know, Uh, Mm -hmm. some tough, actually really just tough answers to find or tough questions to find answers to. Uh, but it is really important, not just as your own individual, like kind of your own, like, uh, you know, your own career path and all that, but it's really just important as you just treat your parent, uh, your patients and build your practice. So I'm going to stop this here because uh, actually I got, you and I have some uh, other things we can talk about related to that. And I think this is a really great stopping point for that. So uh, if you're interested in thinking about um, how to, ask the why and then build processes around that why related to managing patients in a primary care setting, 
because there's a lot of nuances that you just unwrap there, Kyle. And I think uh, let's take another episode to do that. So we'll plan for next week. Uh, stay tuned for next week. And Dr. Cludy and I are going to talk about the uh, way to sort of create processes around that identity so that you can fulfill those that identity and, and provide the outcomes that, that you want within your practice that will ultimately reinforce that identity and take you to the next process. So Kyle, thanks for being on today. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. This was fun. You're welcome. We'll see you next time. It was a lot of fun. 